finally got to John chapter 4. You would think with you know the little marker ribbons, it wouldn't take that much effort to get there. So as we continue working our way through the Gospel of John and working our way through chapter 4, one of the things that's been striking to me is just how much and how big this chapter is. Usually, John's narratives of events go pretty quickly, and he doesn't use up a lot of ink and paper to describe a lot of these events. But yet, this experience and this interaction of Jesus and the woman at the well really is quite long in comparison to the most of his descriptions of events. And, I mean, it takes up this huge amount of ink and paper, which is significant because, you know, writing on papyrus was not as easy as it is for us today with a piece of paper and an ink pen. You know, John didn't have that. And as well as we understand it, as well as I understand it, you know, it's kind of expensive to be able to have something to write on and to have the ink to write with. And so they were motivated by the fact that it was hard to find and hard to do and expensive to not waste words, not to be fluffy and vociferous unnecessarily. And so that just stands out all the more to me when I think about how much time, how much paper and ink John devotes to this whole story and what seems to be very long compared to most of the other events that he describes. So let's look at John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42, and this final section of Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well and the Samaritans in the village of Sychar. Starting in verse 27, just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that opens up our eyes and our ears 
in our minds and our hearts to hear what you have said, to understand it, to believe it, to absorb it, and to be transformed by it. And Lord, I, I pray this morning that as we look into these words about how the Samaritans believed and how Jesus had to do the work of his father and pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the things we need to see about it for ourselves and for our church and for our world and our culture around us. And just let us see it and understand it. Let us at least know you better and have a greater love for you after meditating on this passage. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you know, kind of as you guys recall, we've this woman at the well, and Jesus interacts with her and talks about living water that leads to eternal life. And she's like, Well, give me some of this water. And then to get into this conversation about worship and and then Jesus reveals to her what he knows about her past through his supernatural knowledge that the Father and the Spirit have given to him. And this, all of this leads this woman to the realization that she's talking with the Messiah, the promised Christ, as a Samaritan. And we've talked before, I've emphasized the previous two sermons about how they only held to the first five books of the Bible and didn't believe anything else. And so this whole idea of the whale and the importance of it in this interaction with a Samaritan woman and how that metaphorically plays out and becomes a picture and a symbol of what Jesus is doing for the Samaritans. But then this woman decides to leave. We get to this place where Jesus says to her in the previous verse, I who speak to you am he, meaning that he's the Messiah, the Christ. And just then the disciples walk up. That's just fascinating, right? He gets to the place of saying to her, I am the Christ. I'm the one you're looking for. And now the disciples suddenly walk back up to the well after having gone into the village to get and buy food as part of their day's journey. And it says, John records here, and of course, Matthew and Luke do the same thing, that Jesus and when the disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And then that kind of raises the question, of course, you know, why are they surprised Jesus is talking to a woman? And if you remember at the beginning of this chapter, when I laid out all the ethnic, cultural and moral barriers that Jesus is breaking through, this is what the disciples are so dismayed about. They're shocked that Jesus is breaking the ethnic and gender barriers to talk to this woman there at the well by himself, just the two of them. And they may or may not have had any clues about her moral difficulties and her being a shunned woman. They might have had a clue by the fact that she was there in the middle of the day, that something wasn't right, that she was probably avoiding people because of some issue But at the very least, they understood the first two barriers that Jesus is breaking through here. And their dismay is that this, Jesus is breaking barriers. And as we talked about it in the previous hour, looking at the book of Acts and chapter 15, where the Jerusalem council is meeting and Peter stands up and gives this testimony about how God showed no partiality between the Jews and the Gentiles with the giving of the Holy Spirit through Cornelius. 
and his household hearing the gospel. And then how just before that, of course, there had been the vision with the unclean animals. And, you know, once this idea that this event had to be in the back of Peter's mind at some point, thinking about Jesus breaking these barriers and that the vision and the experience with Cornelius was Jesus once again through the power of the Holy Spirit, breaking barriers that separate people from hearing the gospel. And then we see this with these Samaritans here. I mean, there was very few things that could be more ethnically barrier than the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet Jesus goes to the Samaritans on mission from the father to tell them that he is the Christ and to give them the hope of eternal salvation. I mean, he offers the woman living water. I mean, that there's just no way around it at this moment. He's offering salvation to the Samaritans. And this is just messing with the disciples. They don't know what to do with this. I mean, they, it was bad enough for them to have to walk into this village and interact with Samaritans because they were hungry and had to get some food and water. But now Jesus is talking with this woman and you know what happens? Gosh, you know what happens every time Jesus starts talking to people? They believe in him. He's talking to a Samaritan woman. So you know what's coming, Peter. You know what's coming. She's going to believe in him. And then we're going to have to deal with these Samaritan believers. Now, I know that's being a bit sarcastic, maybe, and reading into something, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans that may not have been present with the disciples in this moment. But nonetheless, this is what dismays them. Wait, you're not playing by the rules that everybody has set up. Yes, that's right. Jesus is telling them, I'm not going to play by the rules that you have set up because they're fake rules. Your rules about not interacting with Samaritans or Gentiles, not my rules. And as we see this play out throughout the rest of the gospel and then into the book of Acts as well. But the other thing that becomes very shocking is just how the woman herself responds. After John records the dismay at the disciples and their reaction to him talking to this Samaritan woman, he goes on to describe how she leaves the water jar and goes into town to tell the people about Jesus. I mean, she just leaves the water. Notice how urgent she feels about this mission of going to declare the Messiah's arrival. Right? She walked a couple of miles, maybe, maybe a half mile. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I got to revisit my map for a second in my brain. Okay, so about a half mile to maybe three quarters of a mile. She walked from the village to the well in the middle of the day to draw water. And she leaves the jar there to run back to town. I mean, that's the urgency that she feels now having interacted with Jesus. This urgency to run back to the village and to tell everyone what she has seen and heard and who she has met. And she does so with such boldness. I mean, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then in verse 30, they went out of the town and were coming to him, coming to Jesus. Remember I mentioned how the Samaritans only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament and and 
the whale story, the, the fact of Jacob's whale and the whale stories play very heavily in their understanding and in their belief system. And Jesus is coming to them as a type of Abraham's servant for Rebecca, a type of Jacob with Rachel, and a type of Moses with Zipporah in Midian. And so this woman's experience is almost paralleling those three ladies in the Old Testament exactly. Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah. I mean, look, this seems so significant to me that I'm even going to take the time to read all three events. From Genesis chapter 24, with Abraham's servant and Rebecca, before he had finished, meaning Abraham's servant, speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with a water jar on her shoulder. Yeah, I'm reading from Genesis chapter 24, starting in verse 15. And the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden with whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave to him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking which was the sign he had asked God for that this was the woman to bring home to his master's son, Isaac, as a wife. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew water for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, woman whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. And the man, Abraham's servant, bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm and heard the words of Rebecca's sister, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but Abraham's servant said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And then Laban said, speak on. Now let's jump to Genesis chapter 29 and read of Jacob and Rachel. Starting in verse 9, when he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she, meaning Rachel, ran and told her father. 
As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, let's look at how Moses interacts with Zipporah and her father in the priest of Midian. From Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father Raoul, he said, How is it you've come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Do you see the parallels now with Jesus at this well talking with this woman? How she understands he's her kinsman redeemer. More than her kinsman's redeemer, he is her fulfilled redeemer as the Christ. And she runs back to the village to tell her old village, look, the Messiah has come. Just as her heroinesses of Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah. And she is the one who brings the good news. But then notice how they respond. They come out to him, to Jesus at the well, just as Laban and then later Raul, the priest of Midian, came out to find Jacob and Moses. And notice something else. This woman's not afraid of the people anymore. She's not afraid of the villagers. She so wanted to avoid interacting with the other women because of all the problems it would create that she intentionally came to the well in the middle of the day when nobody else would be there. And not only did she leave her jug and run back into town, she's no longer afraid of what will happen when she interacts with the men and women in this village anymore. Her fear and shame are gone after she meets Jesus. Oh no, that sounds pretty good to me. Can I get some of that? Can I get some of that where my fear and shame is gone after I've met with Jesus? And so she's not afraid anymore. And then notice how the Samaritans come to Jesus. Yet the Jews, Jesus is always having to go to them. He's always having to go to where they are. But now the Samaritans, they come to Jesus. The Samaritans seek Jesus, but the Jews will not. And then there's this whole paragraph here about food and the father's will being food and and it's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And you can hear the confusion in the disciples. You can hear their confusion as to what? Why are you? What? We brought food. Did somebody else bring you food? See, the disciples are thinking about physical food, and that's why they even went into the village. But Jesus' mission and obedience to the Father is above his physical needs. Also, he knows that the hospitality that is coming. Right? He... He not only knows what this woman has done, he knows what the Samaritans are going to do when they come out from the village and come to the well to meet to him. 
They're going to invite him into the village and he'll have plenty of food then. In fact, eating food at this moment would cause a conflict of sorts because he would be invited into the village and they would be showing him this hospitality. And if he had already eaten, then he couldn't eat their food and that would become an insult. But that's sort of like a bonus material for Jesus. The real heart of it is this idea that the food of the work of his father is what's most important. It goes back to Abraham's servant in the story of him and Rebecca and Laban at the well. They set food down before him, but he would not eat it until he had accomplished his mission, which was to tell them he was there to find a wife for Isaac and that by the Lord's hand and will, he had chosen Rebecca. And would they consent to it? That was his mission. He wasn't even going to eat until he had fulfilled that mission. Likewise, here is Jesus standing at the well, knowing that the woman's gone back to tell the villagers about Jesus and that the Messiah has come, come to the well, come see this man and see if it's not true. And he knows they're coming and he's not going to eat until he's fulfilled this purpose of seeing the Samaritans see him and not just her, the woman, as their Messiah. But in the middle of this narrative here, these verses, there's also a subtle confrontation that takes place. Subtle meaning, and I use the word subtle because it's easy for us to overlook it and not see it. Weren't the disciples just in that village? A couple hours earlier? Did the disciples not say anything to anyone about Jesus in this Samaritan village? I mean, they just go there, get the food, get out. Minimal contact is possible. Is that how this was played out? You're walking with the Messiah and you didn't say nothing to nobody about it in this village? What's up with that? How could you guys be disciples of Jesus and not tell anybody that Jesus is waiting at the well and you're just here to get some food and if they would like to meet Jesus, all they got to do is come to the well? You didn't ever think to say nothing like that? Yeah, see, part of the narrative here and part of the story is the disciples' lack of telling the Samaritan village about Jesus while they were in the village. And then comes Jesus' words here about the harvest in verses 35 through 38. This idea that the harvest is ripe and that don't you even say that in four months comes the harvest. But I tell you, even now, look up, the fields are white. In the moment, this rabbinical teaching about labor and harvest just sounds weird. Let's just Let's just be honest. To us today, even, I think, to the disciples in that moment. What is Jesus talking about? Oh, gee, all we wanted to do was get food and get out of here. And now he's got to go off on one of these teaching things about harvest. Can't we just look, can't we just get going? We've got the food, we've gotten water. Let's just get out of this Samaritan wasteland. But Jesus has something to accomplish, something they need to understand. You know, it's easy for me to forget 
that the disciples are walking with Jesus, but they're walking as people who've not received the Holy Spirit. They've not been transformed the way they're going to be transformed after his resurrection and the coming of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. It's true, yes, they understand something about Jesus that most people are missing, and they are different because of they are with Jesus. But it's not the same as having the Holy Spirit present within them. The Spirit hasn't come yet. The Spirit can't live within them yet because it hasn't come. And in this moment, they're just being normal human beings. Normal human beings without the Spirit. It's easy for me to look back with a critical eye and sort of judgmentally go, gosh, you boneheads, don't y'all ever think about what you're doing? Well, they probably thought about it more than I do, than I think about what I'm doing. And so in this moment, this just sounds weird, Jesus going off on one of these rants. But yet in just a few hours, this whole thing about the harvest will make perfect sense. Because they will, with their own eyes, witness the harvest among the Samaritans. They're thinking Jesus is talking about something coming up when they get to Galilee. That's a couple of days or a week ahead. And he's like, no, no, it's just a couple of hours. This big harvest I'm telling you about is just a couple hours away. And it happens way sooner than they thought. And it even happens with the Samaritans. Somebody they didn't think it could happen with. Jesus is preparing them for what will become their new reality. You enjoy a harvest of believers that you did not labor for. They literally did nothing to proclaim the gospel among this Samaritan village. Yet they are the beneficiaries of the harvest of souls in this Samaritan village. And as they go forward in their time with Jesus, this will become a recurring theme. They're reaping harvest that they did not do anything to sow for. However, there is a time coming when they will labor and another will reap the harvest. And we see that in the book of Acts. And we have the same challenge today. We're going, you know, oftentimes we're involved in being a part of someone's coming to faith. And we think that we get to be, you know, that somehow we've labored for this when in fact we're probably not. Reality is, is we're enjoying a harvest that we didn't labor for. But just like the disciples in the future, we will plant seeds and we will water and somebody else will reap the harvest, at least the way it looks to us. But maybe the most stunning and shocking thing of this whole passage, even more shocking than the woman herself coming to faith in Jesus is this idea that the whole Samaritan village believes. The Samaritans believe in Jesus. Are you kidding me? Of all the people on the planet? I mean, what's next? Gentile believers? Yeah, that's what's coming next. They need time to warm up to that one. After meeting Jesus at the well, the Samaritans invite him to stay in their village. If you, you'll notice, not just in the rest of the Gospel of John, but in Matthew and Mark and Luke, the Jews don't do that very often. It's really kind of 
infrequent and rare that someone invites Jesus in to stay with them. But the Samaritans are doing it. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine the conflict, this, the internal conflict this started to create for some of these disciples? It's bad enough that we're going to the Samaritans, that we're walking through it. Now we're going to stay in their village and they actually believe in Jesus. They're actually believing in him quicker and faster than our Jewish brothers and sisters are believing in Jesus. They're welcoming Jesus in and hosting him for two whole days with his whole big entourage of disciples. And they're not, don't seem to be complaining about it. And the Jews are like, eh, just another teacher. The Samaritans, they believe Jesus' own words and his own teaching. Once again, in contrast to the Jews. The Jews won't believe what Jesus says about who he is. And the Samaritans just embrace it right away. They even come to the place where they say out loud to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe he is the Messiah. Because or for, you can often use the word because in the place of the word for. Because we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Have you noticed the subtle change that just took place in their confession? Before she was saying, look, this is the Christ, come see. And now they're calling him the Savior of the world. Even during this two-day period that he's there, their understanding of who he is changes. From the Messiah, meaning whatever it is they as Samaritans think, which is typically that the Messiah comes, he will explain the Mosaic law perfectly and restore the ideal of the Mosaic law to something way bigger than the fulfiller and the restorer. He's the savior of the world. Well, I mean, really? I mean, I've tried to think I mean, I've mentioned this before as I walk through this whole, as we've walked through this chapter, what comparison, what equal metaphorical comparison could I come up to that equals the confusion and hostility between Jews and Samaritans, the between us and another group. And they all seem to fall flat and be, you know, be incomplete. Maybe, maybe one of the best ones is, Arab Muslims. You really expect me to go to Saudi Arabia and tell them about Jesus? You want me to do what? Are you kidding me, Jesus? They're stinking Muslims. They only believe in Muhammad. They don't even believe in the Bible. And you expect me to go there and tell them about you, that they will put their faith in Jesus, that Isa is the savior of the world? that they will actually confess with their mouth, Isa is the savior of the world? You really think that's going to happen? And then it does. And the Muslims believe in Jesus? Are you kidding me? And they embrace him completely, just as these Samaritans did. So what? I mean, this is great. I'm happy for the Samaritans. I'm sympathetic to the disciples with this sort of ethnic confrontation and bias they have to get over. But 
So what? When I go home and eat a sandwich, so what? Well, the first thing that stands out to me is Jesus consistently uses the least likely person to reach his sheep. Just as with Rebecca, Rachel, and Zipporah, the good news of a Redeemer Savior comes to the people through the witness of the woman. Well, that's a very unlikely case. And this particular woman is extremely unlikely to be an evangelist for Jesus. When God called me to be a pastor here in Colorado, I'm like, are you kidding? I was born and raised in South Carolina. I mean, like, that's where I should be. That's where I belong. I got no business being out here. I talk funny. They'll make fun of my accent. Nobody wants to listen to this guy from South Carolina. Okay, fine. That's what you want. That's what we'll do. He just uses the least likely person. Secondly, we have to always be on guard at thinking someone is unreachable like the disciples saw the Samaritans. I mean, I, I carelessly said out loud a couple of weeks ago, well, Jesus, if you want to save that person, that's fine, but I don't want to have anything to do with it. You may remember that moment. Did I actually say that out loud? Yes, I did. I betrayed the true attitude of my heart. And so do all of us. If you want to save them, fine. Just don't, don't involve me. They're unreachable. At least for me, they're unreachable. So don't, don't want anything to do with it. And then third, what is your belief in Jesus based upon? Do you believe because of someone else's belief or, as these Samaritans confessed, it is no longer because of what you said that I believe, for I have heard for myself and know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That may, depending on where you are, that may be the most confronting question. Why do I believe? Do I believe because I'm supposed to? Or do I believe because I've actually heard the Savior of my soul call my name and call me to him? I pray that that's the case. That you know and love Jesus because you've actually heard him. And if not, I pray that you hear him today and answer what he says to you. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your saving grace that you would even reach someone like us. Stinking Gentiles get to be part of the family of God. You are Lord, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.